Well, we are looking forward to getting into Exodus. Let's pray here, and then we'll open our Bibles to Exodus 15 and maybe get into a little bit of 16 this morning, this evening. Father, thank you for this time together in the Word. What a joy it is to have our Bibles hear from God. You speak to us through the Word of God. Uh, We're not left to what the world thinks. Uh, We can navigate this life. We can... Uh, we can learn to walk with you in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord. You give us all this instruction. Uh, you give us examples of those who have gone before us, uh, even poor examples and grumbling examples, as we'll see tonight. But you also give us others, men and women, who love you and spend time with you. And, and so, Lord, we're so grateful to have a Bible that we can turn to and know the Word of God. We ask that you would press those things upon our hearts today. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would just refine us a little more today. Lord, all of us probably have a rough edge or two that needs to be ground off tonight. We pray that you would do that for your glory, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd entitled the sermon, Praising and Grumbling, A Serious Heart Condition. Praising and grumbling. They don't really go together, do they? And yet we'll see that in today's text. And it's evidence of a difficult, difficult heart issue, even with God's people. And I would imagine as we go through this today, um, we will feel a little bit of tension in our own lives. Because there's times grumbling uh, works its way into our hearts. I was reading James chapter chapter 3 here lately, and I came across this set of verses. You know this, just thinking about this, this title, Praise and Grumbling, a Serious Heart Condition. James chapter 3, verse 8 says this, But no one can tame the tongue. This is restless evil and full of deadly poison. Ooh. Anybody ever hear that before? Or see that done to you? Or maybe you can say, Ooh, I've had that come out of my own mouth. Verse 9, listen to this. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. That's exactly what's going to happen in our text today. Who who has been made in the likeness of God? So we bless God, the Father. We curse men, even though they're made in the likeness of God, James says. For from the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing, My brethren, listen to this, these things ought not to be this way. That's written nine to 2,000 years ago. And yet, is that not statement so true today? I love the way he ends that. (laughs) Hey guys, these things shouldn't be this way in the church. And yet, we know it's there because James has to deal with it. James has to write on this. God inspires him to go through it. Well, we see this very similar happening uh, in our text today. Remember, uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that nothing really changes. There's nothing new under the sun. So we don't look back um, at Exodus and the nation of Israel and see really differences too much in them than in us. We find the same sin issues, the same struggles. All of that put our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. Well, as we turn to Exodus 15, we come to the song of Moses. And so I want to just mention that a little bit. I'm not going to go through that entire song, but I want to talk about that just for a few minutes. Our first point is this, singing the victories of God. Singing the victories of God. We just did that. 
And when you have a, when you've been studying this all day, you, uh, as I listened to the songs that Hayward was leading us in, we sing so much about the victories of God. Uh, I'm teaching soteriology right now at the seminary, and I think there's 14 of us um, on online together, and we're doing Zoom, which is I hate it, but we're doing it. Um, uh, and, and here we are, all these people in all these different homes, and we're Zooming, and that, that I think my students think I'm crazy because I'm just as animated you know, on Zoom as, as I am here because you're talking about what God has done for us. And, and all these attributes of salvation, you know, all these truths and characteristics of salvation, of adoption and sanctification and justification, you're working through all these great deep truths and Realizing how great God is. And, and at times you just want to burst out in song. That's what God's word and his truth does to us. That's why God's people have always sung. They have always sung. Because there's an expression eventually you cannot hold it in. And it bursts forth. And that's what we see here. And, and think about what's gone on here on our first point here. Um, they, they've seen firsthand the destruction of their enemies. And Israel gives praise in this song to the wonder and power of God. The event is, they're awestruck, right? In, in such a way. And they had been grumbling, right? Right before this, the first complaint we see is, is them hemmed in between the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh and his armies barreling down and they start to complain. And, and remember they said, aren't the graves not good enough? Now, that grumbling is gone and it gives way to praise if they've seen what God has done. They, have, they were at a point, think about that, with no hope. They're hemmed in against the Red Sea. The pursuing Egyptians are on top of them and the Lord intervenes and he wipes his enemies out, their enemies out in front of them and then this language starts to come out of them. This language of psalm gets produced and it's, it's just not some poetic style when you study this. It's a joyful proclamation from the Israelites. It's a joyful proclamation and an expression of thanksgiving. Yahweh rescued us. Yahweh delivered us from the tyrant Pharaoh. Uh, you'll notice as you glance at this and I'm gonna challenge you in a minute to read this in your own private time but the people gladly join in singing. And there's actually two songs here that are actually going on and two writers. The first song is written by Moses, 1 through 18. The second one is a shorter and more of a chorus of the original song, and it's led or sang by my, uh, Miriam in verse 21. But tonight, we're not going to take time to look through it, but I, I do want you to mark that how beautiful this is. There's so many characteristics in there. He's called the high exalted one God. They're, he's, they're, they constantly talk about his salvation. And they extol him. He's called their warrior on and on and on in this. It's a beautiful hymn written by Moses. Now the first song is called the song of Moses. And one of the things that's really fascinating about that, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Write this down. Exodus 15 and then write down Revelations 15. Now, Revelation 15 is this uh, amazing hymn, song, um, that parallels, in a lot of ways, Exodus 15. Uh, Revelation 15 also has a glassy sea uh, and expounds on the great marvelous work of God. It, too, reminds the people uh, to, to understand who God is, have a reverence for God, in that he can pour his wrath out on his enemies at any time. It parallels that in an amazing way. 
And I would encourage you to read both those together on your own time and maybe in the morning sometime. There's one more song of Moses. I don't know if you know this. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. One starts one, runs through the early 40s, maybe somewhere around uh, 43 there. That's another psalm or, or song of Moses. In each one of these, Moses pins, um, and they have great truth in them. In fact, the last one, just a minute, I'm going to spend just a little bit of time on this. Moses is going to die real soon. So if you want to see what's going through a heart of a man who loves God, who has gone through tremendous trials, shepherding a very difficult nation, you want to see what's on his heart, read Deuteronomy 32. And just shortly after that, the Lord takes Moses home on Mount Nebo. But I'd encourage you to take time to read those. Verse 20 and 21, we see Miriam. She comes along and and, and she's really, uh, her song is more of a highlight of the choruses of Moses' song. Sing to the Lord, for he is high exalted, the horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. I think it's the same word, Brian, in the Hebrew where God hurls the storm at uh, Jonah's boat. Um, so it's a very strong term, something that only God can do. Um, and so she brings this. But what's unique about her is she has an ability to lead all these women of Israel to get in a song, get into the song, and they dance, and they, and they sing this, and they rehearse this chorus together, and there is such relief and joy. So you have to think about what's going on. Their enemy, for 430 years they've been, they've been in Egypt, is dead, <laughs> washed up in front of them. They thought they were going to be dead. So their expression comes out in this song, and this whole nation is dancing and worshiping before the Lord at his power to rescue them. And you can just imagine the relief they felt. So I encourage you, Exodus 15, Revelation 15, Deuteronomy 32, look at those, and I, I promise, promise you you'll uh, really enjoy them. Second thought tonight, the sin of grumbling against a gracious God. The sin of grumbling against a gracious God. Verses 22 and following. Now, here we see that the song of the sea did not only look back with gratitude, but when you study the song, they're looking forward to what God has. So, so this chapter is describing a, a new transition for them, right? So think about it. 430 years in Egypt, released, chased, pinned in, Enemies wiped out, rejoicing in song. Now what do we do? It's really a transition for them. And they're starting to follow God as he leads them into the wilderness. So verses 22 through 26 record this large nation, 2 million plus people following God with confidence after he disposed their enemies. Now, soon they're lacking water. They, they don't have water, and this now starts to expose this heart again, right? This grumbling, complaining nature of this stiff-necked people starts to rise out of them again. Now, to be fair, let's put our feet in their shoes for just a moment and think about this. You, you've, you've lived a difficult life. You've been a slave, um, and now you, you've... You've been told that you're going to come out of slavery. 
You felt like you were going to die again at the edge of the Red Sea, but God delivers you. But all along, since Moses came back and began to tell the nation that God had spoken to him, he promised that you were going to go to this land of Canaan. This land that the Bible says is flowing with milk and honey. It's a term that speaks of the the fertileness of the land. Uh, If you were to talk about that, it would be like the best pasture land you could ever buy. Uh, There's places in California, out in central California, where they test the soil that doesn't change for 200 feet with no change at all in any way in the soil. There's places like that in the Jordan Valley as well, which would be the land of Canaan. So you're told that your next stop is Canaan. You're thinking that in your mind. But I want you to just, again, think about this. This is not the way salvation works, unless you die in your deathbed. What happens when we get saved? We enter a life full of many trials and temptations, many difficulties and tribulation, don't we? And so we know that after the time of salvation, there is an intermediate time on this world before we step into glory that often has difficulties. And so I'm looking at this going, wow, he rescues them. He saves them out of bondage. That's saving out of sin, right, is is the parallel there. He brings them out in a mighty way. All of our salvations are miraculous and mighty. And yet there is a time that is very difficult, isn't there? And they're gonna go through it. And I think, like us, at times, they're still very weak in their trust in the Lord. And God is going to take them through circumstance after circumstance to expose their lack of faith in him. Now, it's one thing to sing of the praises of a deliverer at the, at the edge of the Red Sea as your, your enemy is dead before you. But it's quite another thing to live your faith with circumstances that you cannot control. Every one of us have circumstances in our life that we cannot control. The amount of money you make. An illness you've contracted. I mean, there's, we all have things that go on. Maybe a relationship didn't turn out quite what you thought it would be. We all deal with that. But through these times, and this is what God teaches us in these lessons like this, through these times, God teaches us that he tests us. And God... God's clear goal is for us to understand that on our own abilities, we cannot make it through things. God is a God who wants us dependent upon him. That's the opposite of human nature. So Christians are filled with the spirit of God who cause us to begin to learn over time and in a process, right, of starting to let go of all the control that we want from our fallen flesh that we want to hold everything. And over time, through difficulties that we go through, we begin to release that as we grow in the Lord. That's why we're we're careful with our older believers. As younger people, we don't mock them. A lot of them have been through a lot, and you see them, and they'll trust the Lord in ways that young people go, well, I don't get that. Now, on the, to be fair to young people, you watch young people who are grounded in the word and don't mess around and get in the word and grow. Wow, they're a great example. Because this is what God does. He takes us through this. Now, let's look what's going on here. Look at 22 and 23. Then, the, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. So they're leaving that scene of worship and dead soldiers and horses floating around or whatever that looked like, right? And they went out, they went out into the wilderness of Sur or or sin, it might be in your Bible, S-I-N. And there they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. 
And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, for, their, for the, they were bitter. Therefore, it was called Marah. Now, the term wilderness here refers to an area of, of sparse grazing. <laughs> uh, Nevada. <laughs> you ever driven through Nevada? It's one of our favorite states. There's nobody out there. <laughs> um, and and way you, you, know, you figure out, oh, there's cows out there. Well, how, many, how do you figure out how many cows you can have in Nevada in certain places? Well, it's, it's all how, 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 many cow, how much acres you need per cow out there. The grass is so far, and the cows have to travel so far to get that. It's sparse. You still can make it, and there's plenty of water out there, but it's distant. And so now they got two million people with their herds and all that they have. They're out there in this very sparse place and they're lacking water. Now, the Sinai Desert's an interesting place. I read a little bit on this week, trying to understand it a bit. It has many pockets of vegetation, and there was all kinds of nomads that worked that area and moved their flocks in it. But the area was known to have minimal rainfall, but it had short rainy seasons. So when we study this, we find out that they're not finding water for three days. That's unusual. So it could have been, here we go, ready? Climate change. <laughs> because there are times our nation, our world, that things shift around a little bit. And you know, if you live in California, you have a drought every six years, and it's just the way it is. Just the world underneath the fallen world that goes through different things. And so it's quite possibly they're going through this and they can't find water. It seems to be extremely scarce. And as must have, most of us know, three days without water, you're getting close to the human limit, aren't you? And think about that dry heat out there. So any bread that you had left over, it's crumbling, it's, it's not doing well. All your resources are starting to be exhausted. Now, it was also known that the Sinai Peninsula had wells and springs. And this is fascinating. They put these wells, they found springs, and where there wasn't a spring, they would travel a day's journey, where they would take you to do a day's journey, and they would dig a well. So you could move throughout the Sinai Peninsula in most places and always find water, but they're not finding them. And there's several reasons. Either that climate change is going on and some of the wells and springs have dried up, or God's leading them away from the water. He's testing them. And that's what actually our Bible says. He's testing them. And so, as the situation worsens, as we see in 22 and 23, this oasis appears on the horizon. Now, I, in, if you haven't left the south or Florida, it's really kind of hard, but you get out into the open plains of the Midwest or even out west in Utah and Cal, parts of California and, and Nevada. I mean, there's all kinds of things you see out there because of the vapors and things that go on. But you can imagine these. People haven't drank for three days and here comes this oasis on the horizon. But the problem, it's Mara. <laughs> a place where the water is bitter. Notice that in the verse. And most people believe they're about 50 miles um, from the Gulf of Suez there. And so they, they, they kind of got an idea of where they think they were. And this bitter water was probably because of the, black, uh, the brackish water that made its way down in there. So it was like going out and drinking in the intercoastal. Anybody want to take a sip of that? Yeah, no, probably not. And so here you come. You're dying of thirst. You've come all this way. And this oasis is disappointing. And you begin to grumble. How many of us have had something we were looking so forward to and then COVID hits and your wedding gets canceled? <laughs> I'm looking at John and Deborah. 
<laughs> Bless you guys. I mean, we've all at some level have had something you were really looking forward to. Here it's like, I need a drink, bad. Um, I need water, and it's not there. Look at verse 24. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Well, the word grumbling here is an interesting word. It's used a lot in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We'll see that in just a moment. It means that it, it, here, particularly this word, is describing a repeated behavior. A repeated behavior. And, and yes, we may cl- complain time to time, but once we move into habitual discontentment, the Bible labels us grumblers. Right? Now, I'm not going to say that it's okay to crumble a little once. I'm not trying to make that excuse, because I'll do it. But it's a repeated affair where, you know, you're always bothered by everything. And you turn into a grumbler. Grumbling arises from the heart. It's an attitude of dissatisfaction with God's choices for you. It's often associated with frustrations or your inability to change your situation. And so this inner discontentment expresses itself in a, in a hostile grumbling. And probably most of us have fallen into this sin or we've been with somebody in a relationship that has or we were raised with a parent or whatever it is, I think you know what this means. This is a reaction of ungratefulness and it tempts us, listen to this, what's what we see in this text. It tempts us to turn on the undeserving. Isn't that what they did in verse 24? So the people grumbled at Moses. What is he supposed to do? <laughs> I got my camel back here. Everybody want a sip? I mean, think about it. He's not the problem. But yet that's who they go after. And that's what the sin of grumbling does. It's the sin of ungratefulness, the sin of discontentment, the sin of frustration, sinful frustration. You will find somebody undeserving and you will take it out on because you don't dare go to God with it because you know it's wrong. That's what we do, don't we? It's also a sense of forgetfulness. Isn't that true in the text? Three days ago, what did God do? There is nothing mentioned about that. All of a sudden, the great works of God are gone. And you and I, we fall into this, right? We forget that God could have left us in our sin and let us go to hell. He'd be perfectly just to do that. There would be nothing wrong with God. He would still stand perfectly righteous if he would have done that. By his grace and mercy, he saved us. So we we put all that stuff out of our mind when we're not happy with what he's doing. I tell my wife and I tell people all the time, I sin when I'm not thinking about Jesus. In that moment, when I'm upset, and when I'm sinful, or whatever it may be, uh, cross of Christ is probably the last thing. Forgetfulness of what he has done. But it is the cross of Christ that brings me to repentance, right? Every one of us repent. I hope you don't just repent because, well, I hurt my wife's feelings or my husband's feelings or somebody. Well, that's a decent reason <laughs> and a good one. It's one. But ultimately, as a Christian, we neglect the atoning work of Christ. And we grumble and hurt people. It's only been days now, and the nation is standing now before bittered water after God took care of their enemies, and they grumble. 
And they're showing their lack of spiritual awareness of God's hand and what they're going through. And after watching the power of God, that there was no way that they were going to complain against him, so they turned their attack on the undeserving Moses. They shoot the what? The messenger. Apostle Paul uses this text for the New Testament church. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You go, well, this is Israel. Those guys were knuckleheads. God did so much for them. I think it's easy to throw stones at them, but yet we find this given to us in the New Testament because we got all kinds of problems, right? And it's easy to look at them. We're to learn from them, and this is what this text will teach us. Chapter 10, verse 1, for I... For I do not want to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, now we know exactly where we're at, aren't we? And all were baptized or identified into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food. All drank of the same spiritual drink. All speaking of the metaphorical work of God, giving them bread, sustaining them, water and so forth. For they drank from the spiritual rock, which flowed from them and that rock was Christ. There's a tremendous analogy made connecting Christ and God's sovereign grace through all this. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things, since this, happened as an example for us. That's why we have to be very careful teaching the Old Testament and pointing fingers. God wrote this down for the next generation of his followers to learn from. So Paul says, look, these were given for an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. There was no desire for the things of God. There was no heart desire to strive to keep the law. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some did and were destroyed by the serpents. That was the last straw of their grumbling. Ten, he, says, he says in that text, ten times you've grumbled against me. Uh-oh, he's counting. <laughs> Verse 10. And then he uses the word here, we're after. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example that they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let us think, uh, let us, let, therefore, let him who thinks he stands on his own strength take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able. But with the temptation or the testing, he will provide a way of escape also that you, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. And when you start thinking about grumbling, it won't take you long to connect it to idolatry. It isn't hard. Idolatry comes with covetousness and desiring something that you don't have or upset with something that God hasn't done or has done to you or whatever it is. And it doesn't take long to get to an idolatrous life and you will find grumbling there. 
Go back to our text and look at verse 25 with me. Then he cried to the Lord. Well, that's not the people, that's Moses. Then he, Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet, sweet, and there he made for them a statue and regulations, and there he, God, tested them. Well, 25 is a beautiful verse in the fact that Moses prays. And of course, this is what the people of Israel should have done. They had a God who loved them, who brought them out of slavery, who sustained them and wiped out their enemies. They needed to turn to him, not complain against Moses. But we love Moses here because notice he does not hesitate at all, does he, in verse 25. He immediately prays. Now there's times when we're going to go through this, we're going to see where he'll lash back at them in a little bit in some righteous anger, but not at this point. He cries out to the Lord. It's fascinating that the text tells us that the Lord showed him a tree. (laughs) I like that. And it's just not any tree. It's a particular tree. It was a bush, in fact. And it was in the region. And and it had certain properties within it. Um, They know this bush. Um, It's called a moringa tree. And it can soak up certain minerals and things like that. And they use it in small amounts of water. (laughs) But I don't want you to get that, oh, they threw in this tree and it would just, and the tree fixed it all. The tree was a lesson because this was supernatural. <laughs> One tree thrown into a spring uh, certainly would not provide fresh water for two million people and all their livestock. But it does give evidence that God supplies things, earthly things uh, in our life, medicines and things like that, that he uses to aid in our health. God does that. He gives us doctors who study and, and people who have designed medicine and learned that, that, that help us with issues that we have here in this fallen world. And I thank the Lord for that. I think that points to that. But this tree functions more as a sign um, to help the nation put their faith and trust in following God that he can give them what they need. That's what this tree is about. Notice at the end of verse 25, and it says that um, there he made for them a statute or, and a regulation. Now, there's some people believe that this was a portion of the law that he gave out here, and I, I read some men who believe that, but I don't think that's what it was. I, I think the words here are more translated, he gave them instruction rather than a legal document like the law was. So what I believe the Lord is doing here is he's teaching them the basic lessons of life, of trusting God, having faith and obedience, um, and, and having a correct response to God to gain divine blessing. Now, in no way am I talking about prosperity gospel here. I want to be very clear. That I'm talking biblically. I'm thinking biblically that obedience leads to blessing. We know that, don't we? So think, think, think biblically here. God is holy. So if God is holy, that means without evil, without sin. And if he's asked to bless something that is sinful, it goes against his nature, right? And I think this happens too often in our own lives. or uh, So maybe some of you are trying to help somebody, counsel something through. And they're living in, in sin, known sin. It's been shown to them. And yet they won't repent and turn from it. Yet I want God to bless me. God blesses righteousness. And here is a practical righteousness that I think God is laying down for them that they're to obey God, set these statutes up, follow him and and find favor with him. He blesses obedience. 
It's so different than prosperity gospel. Prosperity of God is almost God owes us something. He needs me. That's what's taught so often. God blesses. He's kind to all the world, right? He has a common grace that, that goes out to the world. He, he heals people. COVID's gonna go away eventually. He's gonna heal people. That's what he does. Um, but what he does for his own that obey him, he brings blessing in their life. Notice at the end of the verse, verse 25 says, and there he tested them. So meaning God divinely brought this into their life to exercise their faith. So he set up a statue here, set up a testimony for this. This is a time where I first start to test you to see when I give you my law what you're gonna do with it. Are you gonna learn to follow me from your heart or are you gonna grumble and live an outward legalistic life? He's preparing them. That's what I think he's doing here. I think in difficult times, God's people must rely on the Lord to provide for them. And I, I think it's a huge problem with us Christians at times. We go, we, we go through a difficult time and our first reaction is to try to get out of it on our own. And how many times do we fall flat on our face, brothers and sisters? And we go through struggles and we hurt those around us because we're not fun to live with. And we go through all kinds of problems because we won't just go to the Lord. That's why I think verse 25, the beginning, of it, I really found just a sweet time with the Lord just thinking through this. Wow, look what Moses did. He's got two million people complaining. <laughs> you might go, well, I got like three. <laughs> and what does he do? He goes to the Lord. Moses is a faithful leader and he's leading the people to God. Verse 26, and he, God, said through Moses, if you give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and and keep all his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord, am your healer. Now, in this verse, the re, there is a desired response of God's people here. This is the covenant keeper, God himself, spelling out what the desired response of his people should be. And there's like, I think, at least five truths here. If you have your notes, notice the worst, first one. Listen to the word of God. He says, if you will give earnest heed. It's an interesting combination of words there. It literally means Um, give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, that the responder goes beyond just hearing, but actually desiring to have an understanding of what God is saying. Oh, that was a good sermon. Well, what'd you like about it? Uh, hmm. (laughs) Well, I read a great passage. What was great about that? Well, there's some things about God in there. No, no. Here's what I learned. There's, a, there's this longing to know him, right? There's an earnest heed of his voice. When you hear him speak, warning, negatives, positives, whatever it may be, you hear him speak through the word of God. Notice the second one. There's right according to God's standard. He says, and do what is right in his sight. So God has a standard of righteousness of how to do things. Now, now this is a complete reversal of what's happened to mankind. The man fell into rebellion against God. So this is saying rather than, rather than accepting God's standard of righteousness and conduct, man has always rebelled against God. That's his problem. He's in rebellion against God. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God. They plunged the human race. We rebelled with him. 
But now God is saying to his people, I am charging you to do what's right according to my standards, not according to yours. Now this, this is an interesting point. A lot of us try to make up God's standards for him. <laughs> we start to say, well, I think this is the standard. Today the church is really struggling with this, isn't it? Just take on marriage and gender and all that stuff. There's all kinds of churches that are caving to all kinds of issues and making new standards that do not match with the word of God. And there's plenty of people who are being convinced by it. Because guess what? I don't have to change. <laughs> I can live just the way I want. And, and I can make God, I can form him into the image I want him to be so he'll accept me. But notice his command really pushes that and says, look, Give ear to the commandments, oh, excuse me, and do what is right in his sight. Do what is right in his sight. So there's several things. He tells us what's right, and he's what? Watching. Now, don't think of God as this mean ogre type person. A lot of people have that in their minds, right? He's your loving father watching over you. Helping you, leading you through the spirit of God and the word of God to do what's right so you don't fall into consequences, not only sin, but the consequences that come with it. Notice the next one, quick obedience to further instruction and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. At the moment, they had obeyed the instruction given by Moses in order to receive fresh water, right? But further instruction from God was coming. The law is coming. And they were to quickly strive to obey that now let me let me give preface to this no man can be saved from keeping the law right we know that romans chapter 3 says no no one will be justified um, by keeping the law but what god is after is even in the old testament just like he is today is after the heart of his follower he knew that these fallen people as he gives the law at sinai that they could not keep it in order for him to accept them in order for them to enter the kingdom of god so he said, love me with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your strength. So he has always been after, and the true followers of God, have, he has always been after these who love him with all their heart and their soul and their mind. There's no way for them to keep the law in order to be, salvation, to be, uh, to be saved from it, but they kept the law because they what? Loved God. So what he's doing is preparing them for this law that's going to come here. He's given them this instruction. Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. What commandments and what statutes? I had to ask the question when I was studying this. The coming law. He's preparing them. Are you going to love me and obey me? Again, I want to be very, very clear. We are not talking about keeping the Mosaic law here. That was never God's intention to give a law to save people. He gave the law to see, help them know that they needed God. They needed him to be their healer, their deliverer. And the law drove them to that. But they were to anticipate those things. Next one, obedience and protection. He says, then he turns this, I will. And what's fascinating about this text, it kind of starts out with Moses kind of speaking, but then you see where God's words kind of come in. If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord, your God, it's kind of second person, isn't it? They're a third person. And do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his commandments. Now look what it does. I will put none of the diseases. 
Notice all I said, he goes to first person. So there's this, there is this great um, merge of the testimony and God speaking through Moses to all of us said, now he is speaking directly in a sense to them. I will put none of the diseases on which I have put on Egypt. Now, not only would obedience bring blessing, but listen to this, but the disobedience would bring consequences and penalty, wouldn't it? Sin always has consequences. And God, and God's, he displeased with, with sin. It does not please him. And, and, and often we see in the Bible association of disease sometimes with disobedience. Right? We read in 1 Corinthians where he sent snakes and, and he put disease on the people. And you go, well, that's Old Testament. Ever read uh, 1 Corinthians 11? Some of you are sick and you die because you mishandle the gospel at the table. God doesn't change. He still deals with people when they mishandle what he has given, when they don't bring worship to him the way he has asked them to come, trusting him alone for salvation. So so the plagues that fell on Egypt, these were, were an awesome warning. It's a warning to them. But then he turns, and I think he does it very positive. He says, I, I, I will, if you obey me, I, I will keep these penalties from you. I will protect you from these diseases. And then finally, he gives this title of God, the healer. For I, the Lord, am your healer. Well, why would he say that? They don't have the plagues. Because everyone who doesn't know God, everyone born on this earth, needs to be healed. Our hearts are desperately wicked. They're sick. We are fallen in sin. Every one of us need healing. And so this is a title given here. This is a title given to God. And the Lord gives this charge to his people, announcing them through one of his titles, a description that God summarizes himself in this instance. I am the healer. You obey me. You walk with me. Walk with me your heart. I know you're, you're, not, you're a fallen human, but if you walk with me with a, with a right heart in a consistent way, I will heal you. Now certainly, um, God is not talking about the use of modern medicine here, but he is the healer. And, and it was hard in that time. In the ancient world, um, they, they believed that, that they, they could, their gods could heal you, but that didn't help in Egypt, or did it? God, God sent all the plagues, their, their gods could do nothing. But even in Israel, Ill, illness was often associated with demonic things and sin. Remember when um, the blind man, I think John 9, uh, the disciples say, who sinned, this man or, his, or he? Did his, I mean, did his parents or this man sin? And God said, none of them, this is for my glory. So that was a common understanding that sin often brings disease, and it sometimes does. If you live in a godless life, you fall, often will fall into difficult times. But here it's a spiritual connection just as much. The Lord um, will rescue from trouble. Listen to Psalms 103. He talks directly to this, verse 2 through 5. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities. That's a great line, isn't it? who heals all your diseases. That's what God does. He's a healer. You know the worst disease we have? Sin. (laughs) It's a terrible disease. It eats away at you until it takes you to hell. You can't even imagine anything worse than that, than than the disease of sin. It corrupts. It affects people around. You want to talk about infectious disease? 
It affects people around. It, it moves, it'll sweep through households, it'll sweep through communities, it'll sweep through nations. And there's only one cure, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's the healer, and so he pardons our iniquities, he heals our diseases, who redeems my life from the pit, because that's where the disease was taking me, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your ears with good things so that your mouth, excuse me for that, your youth is renewed like eagle. He gives us everything we need. Peter says he gives us everything we need for life and godliness, for salvation and for daily stuff. That's what he does. Look at verse 27 with me. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms and they camped there besides the water. They go from Mara, this place of bitterness where God miraculously quenches their thirst And the cloud now of the presence of God moves them and leads them to Elam, just opposite of Mara. Isn't that like God? Sometimes he'll take us through some very difficult times. We'll even struggle with some bitterness, even some grumbling. We we may not act as way we know we should. And yet God still gives us grace and mercy and brings us into an oasis at times. Elam was a beautiful place. It means large trees, The large trees tell you that there's a large uh, supply of water underground. This was a very pleasant sight for the nation. And it points to the graciousness of God. You know, most of our life, we live without too much trial. You say, what do you mean by that, Scott? Well, if you look at your life, and, and you start counting up the days where you've been healthy, where you've ate, and you've you know, had life and you've gone fishing and you've, you know, whatever. Just think about your life. You know, the majority of our life is a very good life, isn't it? We may get sick. We may go through some broken relationships. We, we, we may have some hardship caused by our sin or somebody else's. But, but for most of our life, it's a very good life, isn't it? Particularly as Christians, and I like this. this. I can see this scene where they've been through difficult times and they've grumbled or sin was exposed to them. He, he said, look, if you don't understand this, you're never going to accept what I have for you. You need to do what's right according to my eyes. And then after he gives them this kind and positive rebuke in a way, he brings them into a place where the water is and there's date trees and he feeds them and meets their needs. And, and this must have been some spring to take on two million people. Let's not grumble against a gracious God. When you're going through something, we have to remember there's a time of testing in your life. He might be testing you right now. Some are deathly afraid of this illness. No matter what the numbers are showing that it's such a rare thing, and and particularly where we live, some people are just deathly afraid of this. And and that might be understandable to what they've been through. But, But at some point, we have to say, God, you have graciously protected me all of my life I'm here I'm alive I, 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 I have people who love me I have a church that loves me and you begin to trust him that's what God's trying to do he's trying to bring us into the springs of Elam to show that he's gracious last thought the grateful behold the glory of God the grateful behold the glory of the Lord we're just moving a little bit into verse six, chapter 16 here and then we'll finish Well, this chapter continues to describe really, again, another negative reaction of the nation to the problems they're facing on this journey to Canaan. But despite their grumbling, God keeps providing for them. 
And he does it in miraculous ways. Notice in verse one, they says they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. Well, the word sin there has nothing to do with sin, like we know, like doing evil. It's just a shortened or abbreviation or equivalent to Sinai here. So it's really the wilderness of Sinai. This is where they're going to move to the mountain of God and eventually be before him in, in several chapters. But it also helps us understand where they're at. They're moving east of the Gulf of Suez, and it supports the crossing of the Red Sea. But notice it says on the 15th day of the second month. So there's, it's very much timed, and it seems possibly that they spent quite a bit of time. So the first month, they were to leave and celebrate Passover on the first day of the first month, right? They're to go out from there. Now you're in the second month and the 15th day, so they stayed at these springs for quite a while. And there they rejuvenated as they got ready to head out again. Notice verse 2 and 3. The whole congregation of sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, here we go, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by our pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What an indictment that is. I don't know how you handle hunger. (laughs) Some of us don't handle it as well as others. (laughs) I mean, how many times have we said, I could kill for a steak right now? That's probably just me. I don't know what you guys say. Piece of chicken or whatever. These guys are panicking, aren't they? So somewhere along the line, they seem to have enough water from this stop, but now they're grumbling when they, and they, They know not to grumble against the Lord, but it is against Yahweh, isn't it? And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses records the exact words of their grumbling. Look at verse 3. These are the exact words. The Spirit is recording this. This is years later as, as Moses is recording the Pentateuch. The Spirit of God brings to mind what they exactly said. Notice in chapter, th- I mean, verse three, chapter 16, verse 3, the quotes around it. Would that we had died by the hands of the Lord's hands in the land of Egypt. So it's a, here you have this direct quote. This verges on blasphemy, doesn't it? If not blasphemy. Would we have died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we had our pots full of meat and our bread to the full for you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us? In reality, here's what they're saying. We wish the Lord would have not saved us, but we would have died like the Egyptians from the plague. How do you get there? You know how you get there. I mean, we all, we look at this first glance, our mind goes, yeah, these guys, they just don't. They are so uncaring of God. How many of us complained this week about something? Now, we didn't say, I wish you would have killed me, God. Maybe you did. I don't know. Have you ever got to that point? I don't want to die. I don't want to live anymore. It's blasphemy. And notice that their complaint is twofold. We don't have any meat and bread, and you're going to kill us. See, remember, Israel lived in the land of Goshen. And even though they were, they were slave there for 400 
30 years, they were in there, probably close to around 300 years of slavery. They still lived in the land of Goshen. That means they lived in the most fertile part of Egypt, so they had good grazing ground. They grew very good vegetables, and even though they were beaten slave, they had good food, and that's what they're thinking about. And though, and though they were cruelly enslaved, they, they said, look, we could produce food. We, were, we could sit by our pots of meat. And it's clear the, the nation still has, listen to this, I want you to think about this, still has this slavery mentality. And there's people in Christianity, and, and I don't know if they're believers or not, but some people still have this slave mentality. They immediately go back to denying God, to going back and going, I want to go back, I want to go back. It's a mark of a lack of salvation. See, bondage is sin. It blinds you in the reality of your condition you cannot see. And this led them to paint this rosy picture. Notice in that verse, it's kind of this rosy picture of their condition back home. And they were crying out for God to rescue them. See, so when you go backwards and you live in the past and you do not worship God and thankful and grateful for them, you'll fall back into this bondage of slavery. You'll make things that are really bad, you'll start to think they're really good. You'll invert all that God has done, and you'll come out with a poor view of God and a poor view of your situation. And the only way out of it is confess and repent with a heart of mourning over your sin that you view God that way. Paul reminded the Philippian church that, hey, you need to forget the things in the past. Reach forward, move ahead, press toward the gospel, press to the high calling of Christ. That's where we live in this present day. Satan loves to keep you in the past, loves to beat you up, kick you around of all the things you failed in the past. And then some of us, he loves to let us get out in the future and think of all the things that, boy, we hope we get to do. God says today is the day of salvation, right now. That's where believers live today. And I think that's why so many people struggle with fear. They're not living in today. I'm breathing today. I ate a really good lunch today. (laughs) I'm alive. I'm with my church family. So many things to say, God, you're so good. Yeah, I got some difficulties in my life. I got a few problems that I need to go to God with. and, And he promised to help and heal me and take care of those things. Boy, when you let your mind go down that road, Satan and your flesh love the past, they love the future, and they love to keep you there in bondage. And that's all these people can think about. Slavery and pots of meat. What a life. Look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. I, I just think this is sweet. It is, I, I would have certainly handled them a little different, right? But the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Here he goes, back to that walking in my instructions. On the sixth day, when they, uh, when they prepare, they will bring in and it will be twice as much as they gathered. Now, here he uses this word rain, it's abundance, a term for abundance, and heaven is a term from God. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna rain down an abundance on them from heaven, it's gonna come from me. And this is the beginning of the narrative of bread of life, bread of heaven. We know it's gonna lead right to Christ in John chapter 10. This is the start of this, and he's gonna do this for years, every day. He's gonna give them enough, and on the sixth day, he's gonna give them twice as much, no matter what they gather. Just pure graciousness. But notice that I may test them. 
the Lord tells Moses that the manna will not only be a provision, but also a test for the people to see if they're prepared to follow me and obey me. Certainly, God was preparing from the law that was going to come, but in either case, unfortunately, they're going to fail. God was testing them. He wanted them to find him as their deliverer, them as their, his, him as their healer. And so the law is the character of God, and it, it, it drives you to repentance, and, and it wants you to follow God because you go, God, I can't do this, I can't keep this, I put my faith in you that you're going to deliver me, and that's what he was after. Christian, listen, we accept Jesus Christ, and he sets us on a journey on a narrow path. There's a narrow gate, and then there's a narrow path. And that narrow path is full of pleasure, isn't there? We're, we're, we're God's people. He's providing for us. But it is narrow. It's not broad road of destruction. And so what tells us that God has done this miraculous work is that we're on that path and there's a submission to him. There's a joyful submission to him. And though we, we struggle with sin in our lives at times, there's this heart desire that God has placed within us, a spirit that's working within us for desire to obey him. And when our sin is exposed, we, we confess it and we repent because we're on that narrow road. And, and there's now a new nature in us. There's a, there's a new creature that has come and we, we are now wearing the righteous robes of Christ. There's been an imputation of righteousness and so we desire to walk with them. That's a mark of a Christian. I know there's a mouthful there. The lack of a mark of a Christian is constantly fighting God on everything, rebelling and, and every turn, not satisfied with them, not satisfied with the person he gave you, not satisfied with the money he gives you, not satisfied with the house he gives you, not satisfied with your health, not satisfied on and on and on. That's not a mark of a believer. Gratitude flows from us. And so he tells them, I'm going to give you this. And we'll see what you do with it. Will you be grateful for it? You know, we're going to see this later on. Remember where they're going to get ticked off about this manna? And they're going to say, all we have is this manna. Something you didn't have to do. Can you imagine having a meal delivered? Well, I guess this happens in some societies. Uh, but you wake up in the morning, go out in the front lawn, getting breakfast in. God is good, isn't he? Look at six and seven quickly. So Moses and Aaron said to the sons of Israel, at evening you will know, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, verse 7, you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumbling against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? You need to know the Lord. That's the emphasis here. That's the key in this verse. He wants them to know I am the Lord. And I think that's what he does in our life, why trials come. The reality of his saving grace he does that in morning, new, every morning. I hope you realize every morning you wake up, God, you saved me, you could have not, you could have chose to leave me there, you did not have to do it. And then he just goes beyond that, he gives us what we need. In all of that, he wants you to see the glory of the Lord. This is actually the first time um, where this term, the glory of the Lord, is used. It's the first accordance of it. And it's not always just referring to some theophany, Right? Here it says, you're going to see that I'm going to provide for you, and in the provision, you will see the glory of the Lord. Now, they had a pillar um, by a fire by night, they had a cloud by day. That 
that obviously was the glory of the Lord, the reflection of the glory of God. But here he says, you're going to see my glory through my provision. I think that's cool. And when I think about that, how he gives us what we need daily, if that's where he wants us to see his glory. I've given you a job. I've given you a spouse. I've given you children. I've given you happiness. I've given you contentment in your singleness. I've given, what, just go right down through the list. Oh God, you're good. And we didn't even get into salvation yet. Adoption, righteousness, justification, sanctification, perseverance. I mean, just keep going down. That All that is a gift from God. We did nothing to, uh, to inherit it. He gave it freely to us. See, that's when you start to see the glory of the Lord. And then, finally, Moses throws this little inspired tidbit in. He says, and what are we that you grumble against us? What he's doing, what he's doing there, this is not, this is not a complaint like, hey, listen, dude, you know, you're supposed to submit to your leaders. He's actually comparing himself to God. God's gonna be your provider. You're grumbling against us. We're not even in the same camp. We're not even in the same sentence structure when it talks about glory of the Lord. I'm just his servant. I'm just doing what he told me to do. Isn't that fascinating text? I mean, just so fun to dig into that. I hope you're encouraged by it. Father, thanks for reminding us of this stuff. We could spend a long time together talking in your word, Lord, but we need to go home and live this now, Lord. We need to be consistent people who love Christ. We, we want to do that. We want our hearts to be motivated by truth, Lord. Oh, not because we have to, but because we get to. You've saved us. You've chained our life, Lord. We now belong to you. You've brought us through a narrow gate. You've put us on a narrow road, but you've given us everything we need on that narrow road. And when we come up against obstacles, difficulties, you're even there to supply the strength and all of our needs to get through that. And so, Lord, I pray as we study the nation of Israel that we would learn to accept what you've done in our life. Good, bad, ugly, things that come along. We live in a fallen world. We, we struggle with the effects of sin and then we complicate it with our own sin. And yet there you are, forgiving us. The blood of the cross washes forward and, and covers all of our sins. And so Lord, let that motivate us to live for you. Let us not be grumblers. One's dissatisfied with what you're doing. Lord, that... Just hearing the definition of that should awaken us as Christians. That we should not be grumblers. We should be, have a heart of gratitude. Lord, thanks for each and every one that are here uh, physically and for those that are watching now. Lord, bless this church, Lord. Give us a heart to desire to follow you in every way, Lord. And we pray that you will continue to use this church to spread the glory of the Lord, Lord, around to the nations here and abroad. We praise you for this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.